Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. How are you? What have you been up to? I'm good. I've, I've got a setback to report on the culinary front. Oh, no. Concerned tofu. What happened? Well, I decided to make for me and Justine a baked tofu with broccoli, which doesn't sound that hard, does it? No, and it doesn't sound that appealing either. No, it's teriyaki. I think it was teriyaki oh, okay, baked okay. tofu. And I got some teriyaki sauce, decided not to make it myself because I found some teriyaki sauce. I think I basically overbaked the tofu, so there was it was heading in the concrete direction. <laughs> the best I got was, I always like when you cook for me, and it's really good to try things. Oh, yeah, that's that's not good. It's like marks for effort. There was quite a lot of concrete left over. Didn't one of our listeners try and help you out with this? Well, that was rubbery tofu, but this was more, it was overcooked. I still switched off the oven and then left it in the oven, which is a slightly fatal mistake. Mm, what possessed you? I was cooking something else for my kids. And so it sort of just was, I just, you know, I have tr- tr- trouble multitasking really. Here's what you don't have that I have. Chronic fear of deviating even a comma from the recipe. Yeah, that's interesting. So I I feel like my stuff generally turns out okay, but it's because I have to have it exactly as it says in the book, otherwise I go into a spiral. I think I more or less follow the recipe, although I agree that the sort of, I find the timings of cooking quite hard to get right, you know what I mean? Particularly if you're cooking different things for different people. How opaque is your oven door? Quite opaque. So I can never really tell from looking through that glass how it's going in there. No, no, you've got to open that. You've got to open. Why doesn't Why doesn't somebody invent an oven where you can tell from the outside how it's going? A little webcam in there, heat resistant webcam. Oh God, that's a good idea. Oh, webcam. Yeah, Jeffcam. That's a different thing. That's my OnlyFans account. God, wow, good idea, Jeff. Do you think we should go on Dragon's Den and pitch it along with your vending machine? No, I think the vending machine still has the sort of top place in my heart. Anyway, what have you been up to? Well, not much, but um, I was hoping to ask you for some advice. Yeah, go on. So it's Eugene's sports day next Monday. In fact, the, the day yeah. this podcast comes out. I mean, it's like it's our, like, like our nightmare, isn't it, sports well, day? Well, there is a dad's race. Oh, no. And the past couple of years... No, definitely not. I've, definitely I've declined not. to run, but I feel that I'm disappointing him every time. And also Sarah hasn't made it easy for me because she joined in with the mum's race last year. Now, she did fine. She was middle of the pack. She was an also-ran. But if I was to join in with this thing, it would just bring back every sports day humiliation no, I suffered no. as a kid. I think you just have to be absolutely sort of hard over no. But what about when he's saying, go on, Dad, you can do it? No, I can't. <laughs> but then when I'm saying to him, go on, Gene, you can do it. It's enjoying yourself that matters. How, how can I say that with any authenticity? I think you say when you get to my age, Gene, you'll... you'll get more of a as a kid it's really important to try different things out when you get to my age you kind of have a sense of the things you're good at podcasting and but you know running is it would it be running or like an egg and spoon i think it's running i think it's running right, um, not egg and spoon no like, i thought of wearing flip-flops and then being i can't run in these otherwise i'd win that race son how much pressure is there Oh, immense pressure. I mean, you know, it's like people around here. They're the sort of people who exercise and do triathlons. No, no, but I mean, things. how much pressure from Gene is there? You know, he just, he looks up to me. And I think to yes. to watch me lose a race in a humiliating way, it would just erode that slightly. 
It's also that thing of losing the race, but being able to not be do it with sort of massively good humour, which I think is a hard thing to pull off. Mm. Let me ask this question. How much of it is sort of PTSD about sports days of your childhood and how much is it about the actual moment now? I think it's a bit of both. So there is no question that I would come last. I mean, you don't know that for a fact. I've seen the other parents, even the... Right, even you've, you've the, scouted out the rest yeah, of the talent. Okay. Even the unfit ones, I think, could, right. could, okay. could beat me. Yeah. So there's definitely that. But also, I remember my first memory of feeling... Oh, this uh, this is a weird feeling. I don't like it. My first memory of feeling patronised was on sports day when I was so far behind the other kids parents were cheering me and instead of oh, hearing no. those cheers as encouragement oh, no. I, I heard them for what they were which oh. were oh look at this poor kid he's so slow yeah i know i got some feeling about that i think i had that when i was in some swimming race yeah i think i accidentally got in the team because there was nobody else for the school and then i, I was with miles behind i think I, my team was already miles behind it was a relay and i was the last leg of the relay oh my god do you think um, yeah. your wild swimming is a is some kind of subconscious effort to correct that maybe I won one race. I came first in a race on Sports Day once. Did you? Yes, it was uh, It was in the three-legged race with Louise Bradley, but really she was just dragging me. She was very fast and, you know, I was a dead weight, but she was still able to win the race. God, I think three-legged race, I mean, that's just like, egg, that's why I mentioned egg and spoon, three-legged yeah. race, honestly. I, I'm look totally with, I, I'm, I'm expressing like deep solidarity with you. Okay, maybe I'm going to feign an injury. I, th- I think it's just like a no, hard no. I choose not to run. I think it's the right strategy. Shall we uh, we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. This week, we're talking about the Hollywood writer's strike. Now, I know Hollywood feels quite far away, but there is tons to dig into here. The strike is relevant to how we consume TV and films and, and also how we value creative work and how we deal with rising inequality. And we're going to be talking to the chair of the Writers Guild for Great Britain, Lisa Holdsworth, to screenwriters Simon Beaufoy and Alice Nutter. So Alice used to be in Chumba Wombat. Indeed. Yeah. Through water over John Prescott. I, I don't think it was her. I think it was her bandmate, Dambert No Bacon. Error. And to academic Gavin Muller about how AI fits into this too, because that is part of the ongoing conversation. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, sorry to be banging on about my kid in school again, but I took Gene to, to school this morning to drop him off. And it's Hispanic Day. Now, I don't know if that is a national thing, an international thing or a thing just at his school. But they had a mariachi band playing in the playground for parents and kids to watch for 10 minutes at the start of school. And it was just a joy. It was Brilliant! Did you dance to the mariachi band? I didn't dance, but maybe, maybe sort of like wiggled. Yeah, maybe wiggled, wiggled a little bit. They, um, they did. You know that song, Tequila, da 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 da, da. Tequila. They did that, but I, I made Gene and his friend shout out Ribena, which I thought was more primary school appropriate. But it was great. And then just how fantastic it is they have something like that at school. I was thinking about my primary school. And I think in all the years I was there, uh, there was one time that a dentist came in to talk to us and one time that a policeman came in to talk to us. And that was it. No mariachi band No. I remember my kids' primary school, they're no longer at primary school, did have something that they called, I think they had a week of this called Wake and Shake. Great. Some kind of fitness thing each morning, I think, for a week. I don't think, I think then Wake and Shake never reappeared. Shake and Vac. That's the sort of 1970s, 80s. I was hoping slogan. to prompt you into singing the Shake, shake and Vac. Shake and Vac, and you bring the freshness back. <laughs> I knew it was in you. What is that? What was it? It's something you sprinkled on your carpet to stop it smelling. Right, I think. okay. <laughs> stop um, it smelling of, of cigarettes in the 70s. Yeah, I think it dates us rather. <laughs> that, I think that's great. Yeah, it was really good. I'm all for... Uh, more places should have mariachi bands for when people arrive first thing in the morning. See if you can get it started at the House of Commons. I'll do my best. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, mine is also performative, which is to sh- give a shout-out to a play called Dear England, which is by James Graham at the National Theatre, and it is about Gareth Southgate and the England football team. Mm. It's about sort of organisational culture the psychology of performance. Obviously, it's about the England team and their travails, uh, about England and English identity. And obviously, James Graham is completely brilliant. Um, He's also a friend of mine, but I think he's by sort of popular claim quite brilliant. And um, it's got the actress Gina McKee. Does that know? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And she plays the England coach psychologist. And 
honestly, she is just brilliant. I just, I was reminded of how many things I'd seen her in and how brilliant she is. In fact, I, do you remember last week I said I was doing the thing at the Orwell Foundation with Jesse Armstrong about yeah. politics and drama? I rewatched In the Loop, which was the uh, Armando Inichi, um Thick of It spin-off that Jesse wrote, and Gina McKee is in that. She's one of the main characters in that, and she's brilliant oh, wow. in it, yeah. No, she's completely brilliant. Anyway, so if you're looking for something um, to go and see fun for all the family, um, even for non-football fans, I'd strongly recommend it. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to start the conversation, we're delighted to have with us Chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain, also TV and theatre writer, Lisa Holdsworth. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on the, the podcast. Well, thanks for coming on. And there was, what do you call it, a solidarity protest? It was a global day of action in support of the WGA strike. So uh, the British version was in Leicester Square last Wednesday. I saw it was star-studded. I mean, any any young writer would have been very well advised to go down there and start slipping the spec scripts around. Absolutely, yeah. We had some big names out there. We had BAFTA and Oscar winners. So Simon Beaufort, who has uh, his Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire. Alice Nutter, ex of Chumbawamba, who I think you're going to be talking to later. Charlie Brooker, Russell T. Davis, and many, many others. Wow. And did you make a placard? I did. What did it say? Mine said, nobody can do their jobs until we do ours, which is the absolute truth and, and something I always come back to as chair of the Writers Guild. The standard of the placards at the WGA protests in the States has been excellent. You know, the placards in, in themselves are proof of what writers bring, I think. I think the war on social media is definitely being won by the WGA. There's nothing more dangerous than a writer with nothing to write. We're going to talk about how it relates to the UK in a few minutes, but can you just set out for us the action that's taking place in the States, this WGA strike? Uh, how long has it been going on for? What are the main modes of contention? I think we're in our eighth week now, so we're two months in. The main bones of contention are just ordinary workers' rights. There's been an erosion of time and money that is being set aside for writers to a degree, as a British writer working in the British system, what they're asking for is something that we would very much like anyway, but they have worked the writer's room system. So they're salaried in a room for weeks at a time, beating out those massive American say things like 911 or uh, Grey's Anatomy, those kind of things that have a huge amount of episodes. They're in the room uh, working those out. There's been an erosion of time on those shows. So they're asking for a standardisation of writers' rooms, how much time, how many people in the room. And they're up to negotiate that. There's also been an erosion of the other income stream for writers beyond your being paid to be in the room on the script fee, which is residuals, which because streaming is a different way of showing television, it's always there, it's always available. We need to find a new mechanism to make sure that everybody shares in the success of a show. And that's true across the industry. We're looking for that in Europe as well. Transparency about figures, how many people are watching. And then what they're asking for on AI is not... We should never, ever use AI for anything ever again down with the machines, but certainly a bit of a consideration about, first of all, the copyright material that has to go into the computer that might churn out the new scripts and how people are paid for that. But also, we don't want a devaluing of writers' jobs by AI. So, so the worst-case scenario is we get loads of really formulaic films and TV that are churned out by chat GPT. I know it's not as simple as that. I know the text more complicated than that. And then as writers, we're just asked to do a dialogue pass on it, you know, punch up the jokes, and then obviously there'll be, again, an erosion in income if that becomes to be. So there's a lot to go at there. Something I'm interested in is it seems to be in large part about there being a career path for a writer. So if you are guaranteed to be in a writer's room for X number of weeks a year, that means it's a job. It's not just something that you, if you're independently wealthy, can afford to dip in and out of. And it's it's not only that, though, is it? It's It's about stuff that you've written 
continuing to generate a, a smaller but residual income over time, and that's changed. And and specifically in America, there is a path through from those writers' rooms. There's a progression in that television career. You can end up running a show, and these changes would would affect all of those things. Exactly. So it's always hilarious when you see an American show go out on TV, and there's like a million producers listed at the, at the beginning of the, as the opening titles go on forever and ever. But every single one of those producers tends to be a writer and that's the natural progression. You go from writer's assistant to in the writer's room to consulting producer, executive producer, et cetera, et cetera, until the ultimate goal for a lot of writers is to be the showrunner. So you're the creator of the show, you're on set, you have you make decisions about casting, production, design, who you're going to work with, who's going to be in your writer's room. Now, that's been a very natural progression. Obviously, not everybody gets there on the American system. But what's happening is because of shorter times in the room, shorter times on set, people who want to make that progression are not getting the training, the experience. Then people are looking at their CVs and going, well, you've only done six weeks in a room, then you're not ready for your own show, which is incredibly frustrating. And, and creatively will stagnate so much power in the handful of a, of a few showrunners and generally as a t- if you are somebody who enjoys watching television or films that's going to make television really really boring you need a constant through line of new talent new voices it also has effect on diversity as well if we are not at the moment most of the showrunners are male stale and pale if we're absolutely honest with a few outliers what we need to see is far more voices coming up to the top of the pile who are uh, people of color LGBTQ people, women, people with experiences beyond the usual. I can see the business sense, the squeezing of that bottom line, but I can't see the creative sense in it. And I think it will damage television uh, in the long run. So these streaming services like Amazon and Disney and Netflix, they must be having a very tough uh, time of it financially then to be making these changes. It wouldn't appear so. What the WGA have also been very good about is releasing the information about what the top earners, the CEOs, the CFOs, etc. I saw something that said what the total of what is being asked for is equivalent to one executive exactly. salary. And that's, you know, everybody wants to consume television. Nobody wants to pay for it. Someone's making a lot of money out of Squid Games or The Witcher or whatever, but they didn't create it. That None of those people sat, in, sat around those board tables are creatives. If they could do what we do, they would, and they could get someone to do it cheaper. And that's where the AI thing comes in. It's their dream that they can just give us the new friends, punch it into the computer and it pops out the other end. And I personally don't see how it will ever happen. I mean, to be fair to them, I find that the best film and television is this stuff where executives have looked at some market research and then tried to construct a programme or a film accordingly. Oh, absolutely. That's always the real good stuff. As long as all the boxes are ticked, you've probably got a surefire hit on your hands. <laughs> and this is the first... Everything that comes through is often a sleeper hit. So Squid Games is a really good example. Nobody expected that to be the giant hit that it was. And if you'd have sat in a boardroom and said, so we've got this Korean language drama, it looks a bit odd on screen and it's about people dying and about late stage capitalism, nobody would have commissioned that. So it's really interesting that that they want to reduce the creativity in the industry. It's it's extraordinary. Talk to us about the difference in terms of unionisation between how things work in the States and how things work here in the UK, because it seems to me the writers' union is strong here. I'm old enough to remember the last writers' strike, which I'd say that it was maybe only 10, 15 years ago. 15 years ago, yeah. Yeah. So what, why is there that culture of strong workplace organisation for writers. Hollywood is incredibly unionised. It's not just the WGA, it's SAG-AFTRA, which is the actors, the directors' guild as well, uh, and the Teamsters who, who run the behind-the-scenes stuff. What they have that we don't have, because it's illegal in this country, is closed shops. You cannot write on most of the shows unless you are a WGA member. And also, if you're in this country and you take any work at the moment you will be blacklisted by the WGA. That's not a power that we have in this country. That's not to say the WGGB is weak in any way. We just don't have that power. We still do acres of casework. We're still in negotiations with the broadcasters and some of the streamers and across theatre and 
all the other major industry bodies as well. But we cannot demand that any production is only staffed by Writers Guild staff, but we do a lot with the power that we've got. Are the WGA looking for a conversation or are there specific demands? There are specific demands and and they've made them very clear. They've made them public, the things that they went hoping for a discussion on and they react. For example, on AI, they wanted guarantees that jobs wouldn't be eroded by AI. And what was offered in return is an annual meeting about AI. A lot can happen in the tech world in 12 months. So it was a completely unacceptable counter offer. It's also worth noting that the AMPTP, which is the um, organization that brings together all the streamers and, and broadcasters and film companies, walked away from the table early. You mentioned the AMPTP there, Lisa. That is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers? I believe so, yes. There was still time in those negotiations for them to keep talking. And yes, absolutely what the WGA is asking for is to get back around the table and start talking about these things. It was a bit of a power move to to leave the negotiations early to say no to so many things that seem very reasonable or not to counter offer on them as well. It's not how negotiations work. And, and I know that the WGA have an incredibly strong negotiating team and will take things back to their membership as well to make sure uh, everybody's happy. This is what's happening with the Directors Guild at the moment. They've accepted their offer, but it's not going down well with uh, certain sections of the membership at the moment, because particularly the stuff about AI. Given that the writers held out in that strike 15 years ago, and, and given that whatever this AI technology might end up being, it's not there yet. What are the streamers, the broadcasters playing at? Where, what leverage do they have to walk away from those negotiations? They are the only game in town if you want to be a television or film writer. They're, they're a cartel to a degree. So if they hold out long enough until writers are struggling financially until careers are beginning to to be damaged. Then obviously that's their leverage. However, the reality for television is there's only so many episodes of Big Brother and repeats of Friends you can put on. I would argue that Netflix is already looking a bit sketchy with what it's got. Yeah, you've got to keep feeding the beast of those things. You want to see new stuff that is interesting to you every time you go onto it. Otherwise, you get into the habit of not going onto it and then you cancel your subscriptions. The subscriptions are the most important things at the moment. I think if the streamers rely too much on their back catalogue, there's not a new stuff. That's exactly what's going to happen. And now we're seeing stories being fed to the press about the strike has stopped production on some of our favourite shows. So uh, some of the Disney stuff, Disney Plus obviously being one of the streamers, some of the Netflix stuff. And and the, the inference is because of those pesky writers, you're not going to get to see your favourite shows. That's not true. It's the same old though, isn't it? When there's industrial action, that's the same exactly. old story. It's, you know, it's a tale as old as time. Yeah. Thanks so much for explaining it all so clearly for us. Before you go, what are you watching at the minute? I'm lucky enough to be as part of the Leeds Festival of Ideas in September. I'm interviewing Christopher Eccleston. So I'm re-watching Cracker on ITVX, which is a really magnificent piece of television. It stands up really well. And of course, I'm a massive Marvel fan. So I'm watching Secret Invasion as well. I'm, I'm very excited to, to see the first episode of that today. Lisa Holdsworth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Pleasure. To carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Simon Beaufoy and Alice Nutter, who are screenwriters and members of the Writers Guild of America. Thanks so much, both of you, for joining us. As members of the Writers Guild of America, you're currently on strike and even picketed your own premiere, I think I'm right in saying, because I should say that Simon wrote the original full Monty film and co-wrote the new TV series with Alice. Why was that an important statement for you both to make and talk to us about the strike itself? Well, it, it was a sort of very sad occasion for both of us, given that we'd spent three years working on, on the series of The Full Monty, that we had to stand outside with placards rather than go inside. I mean, it wasn't exactly the Battle of Orgreave because we did go for a martini. But it's very, very important. We've reached a, a real crossroads in creativity, it, not just in the world of screenwriting, but in music in photography, in art, in novel writing, in every form of creativity, we have reached a moment where if we're not very careful, invention will stop and artificial intelligence will take over our job. And 
what is amazing about creativity and watching a movie, listening to a piece of music, all of those things will stop being amazing. And it sounds as if I'm talking from the position of some crazy science fiction person, but I'm not. AI is about to write screenplays for us. Someone is about to press a button and a plot will be created. And then someone will ring up a screenwriter and say, can you do a week's polish on this just to make it sound like a human being, to give it an accent, to give it a northern accent maybe? And suddenly, a screenwriter's role will have been taken from the whole creation of a piece of work to a week's rewrite. And that's what I find incredibly important to take a stand against. And the studios know that right now, AI isn't in a state to write good films, but it's not about whether or not they're good. At the moment, AI can parody. It's not at the point where it can, it can do a, a good enough job, but if it can parody... And then you can bring a writer in and pay them peanuts to polish it up. It's just about the money. This whole strike is about finances and deprofessionalising what we do. They just want to make it precarious work, basically. Like the gig economy? Yeah, it's a gig economy. Yeah, that's what they want. It's more like that here, but we are a gig economy. America's fighting against being a gig economy and they're stronger than us. They're a stronger union. Can I just ask about what sort of seems like a paradox to to most people, which is, you know, we've had this absolute explosion of streaming platforms, series, and so on, and yet, you know, it's come to this. And and, and maybe some people would think, oh, you know, screenwriting is a glamorous job. So is it is it just that the the profits have been going to these streaming companies and and the writers have been very disempowered? I mean, how how do you explain all that? The streamers have made a mess of the business model and they want to actually take it out on the writers. I mean, the, the streamers are making a lot of money, even though they're saying they can't afford it. Apple made $440 billion in revenue. What the writers want would cost $17 million. So even though they're not making quite as much money as they wanted, like Netflix spent more than they should have, and what they're doing is they're downsizing, which would have happened anyway, and they're blaming it on writers. Yes, and there's another very significant part of the problem. The model changed when streaming became the main way of watching movies and TV series. In the past, if I wrote the script for a movie that got made, I would get something called residuals, which is if the film goes into profit, I get a tiny little share of that profit. And that goes on and on and on as long as that film is making money for the studio. And it seemed a very fair way. If your film tanks because it's awful, you don't get any money. If it's a huge success and it's sold all around the world again and again on television channels, every time it's sold, I get a tiny little chunk of money. It's like royalties, really. And that keeps writers going in the downtimes in between projects when you're trying to think up your next big idea. That's kind of your pension. I still get checks from films I wrote 25 years ago. Still coming in in dribs and drabs every quarter. That is great. And that is fair because somebody's making money on it somewhere in the studio and I get my little percentage of that. The streamers come along and they break that model entirely. They don't sell it on to other television stations around the world. They keep it 100%. There are no residuals. Or if you get a tiny, tiny little bit back, it's a similar revenue model to Spotify. You, you get a laughable amount back. And so... The bit that helped writers survive in between projects has now gone. And the Writers Guild of America are negotiating to try and scrabble back that very important bit of your profit if something is successful. There's this myth that all writers are on really brilliant money. Well, the top echelons are, but it's an absolute struggle to get a foot into this industry, either in the UK or in America. And in America, 33% of writers aren't making minimum wage. You have to get to a certain level before you paid decent money. And in order to get that to that level, you need to be able to go into writers' rooms first and earn the lower levels of money and work your way up. And the streamers want to cut the writers' rooms right down so they'll squeeze out people coming into the industry. Most people, you know... A, great number of people on strike in America have took part-time jobs to survive the strike. It's an industry where the, the pay differs vastly depending on where you are. And there's about 2% of people that make really fantastic money. And a lot of people 
that really don't, but they love the profession. When I first started working here, I wouldn't have been able to learn to be a writer if I hadn't been in a band first and made a certain amount of money to keep me going because I made nothing. You know, I was in a really lucky position in order to spend a year just writing. Most people aren't in that position. It's not a hobby. You can't afford to do this job as a hobby. And what doesn't make sense to me is the streamers are making a lot of money. Okay, individual streamers might be up a bit, down a bit, year on year, but there's a lot of profit being made. And it's this age of prestige television. It would seem, the logic should follow, that that writers are to be valued and cherished. And it also seems that in a digital age where they know who press play on what and when, that should theoretically be better for your residuals, your royalties. Why is it broken? Is it just about maximising shareholder profit? It seems very short-sighted. Well, it's really a dispute with very large corporations that aren't interested in filmmaking. The studios are owned, you know, a- Apple isn't a movie-making company. It's a tech company. So they're not terribly interested in the writing end of the process. They're interested in maximising profit. And that's really what the strike's about. And they've thrown a lot of money at television production in the last few years so that they gain a foothold in the industry, which they all have. And they suddenly have to downsize massively, which is what's happening now. Disney are pulling out of the UK and Europe. And suddenly, they want to cut everything. Nobody on a film set gets out of bed without the writers. No film happens. No director directs without a script. But it's those sort of cuts at the very early stage of the process. And let's face it, it's the cheapest stage of the process, writing the script. But for some reason, it's always that end of the process that gets cut. And, you know, to go back to Jeff's point about the streamers know who press play, well, part of the problem is they're refusing to say who press play. So Netflix for years hung on to not saying how many viewers they had or who was watching what. And so they didn't have to distribute that money. Yes, they said it was valuable business information that they couldn't release to anybody. I've got a question, which is obviously the strike is happening in the US, not in the UK. Compared to the US, I mean, is it basically for UK writers, it's a kind of similar position to what is happening in the US? No, we've all, we've already lost most of our rights in the UK, or we right. never had them in the first place. I mean, right. the Writers Guild of America, if you're a member, it, it comes with a pension plan. Uh, it comes with your health care, which in the States is essential. Yeah. And it comes with all the promises of residuals. In the UK, if I wrote a movie, I would never get residuals, no matter how successful it was. I would uh, say that the BBC is an exception to that because they, they will give you residuals and they will treat you properly. But everywhere else, we're already the gig economy here. I started in 2006 writing. I've done writer's room without any pay. That was standard here. Which is shocking. You went into the writer's room in the hope that you'd get an episode and you work for nothing. You were lucky if you got your train fare. I have done that so many times. People used to come up through things like Holby City, you know, re- returning dramas that never went off, that would do a form of apprenticeship by getting new writers in, doctors, you know, things that run continually. They're, they're all gone. It's almost impossible to get into the industry. And when you do, when you're starting off, you somehow have to finance yourself until someone trusts you. And the industry's like lemons. Nobody's going to come to you until you're a proven success. Is there any way that success for the Writers Guild in the States has a positive repercussion in the UK? Or are we too far gone at this point then? It's an interesting question. I think in terms of the AI question, it's not just if, if the Writers Guild is successful in preventing studios from using AI to write films, we're the sort of canary in the coal mine for creative industries. So if we're successful there, the music industry is already on the case. They move quicker. You get an album out faster than you get a movie out. And they have realized cleverly, quicker than the screenwriting industry has, that this is a massive problem. So if we're successful in that issue in the negotiations, I think that will be hugely influential throughout the creative industries. Let's just ask, finally, what would victory for writers in this strike look like for you? 
I think victory would be to share in the success of something that you created. You're in the ground floor of the creation of something successful as a screenwriter. And a screenwriter deserves a share in that success in terms of residuals. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is a ban on AI being used to create screenplays. I think that is the fundamental and existential point we're fighting for here. Well, look, Simon and Alice, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. And to round off the conversation and to focus in a bit more on the AI side of things, we're joined now by Assistant Professor of New Media and Digital Culture at the University of Amsterdam and author of Breaking Things at Work, Gavin Muller. Hello. Hi. Ed is, uh, you're often breaking things at work, aren't you? Yeah, mainly to your annoyance, Jeff. Yeah. It's, it's down to clumsiness rather than uh, digital disruption or an, anything yeah, like that. or innovation. Yeah, thanks. So I wanted to talk to you about this AI aspect of the strike, because the WGA are asking for several things, but it almost seems like this is something they can see on the horizon and want to start heading it off at the pass now. Is that a fair appraisal? Yeah, I think it's actually really forward thinking to include this kind of clause in the negotiation to put kind of these new forms of technology on the bargaining table, as it were. And and what could it look like? You know, what is the dystopian version of AI in screenwriting? The dystopian one is that you have a sort of unregulated use of these technologies and that what happens to writers is they become these kinds of technicians who are ultimately tinkering with large quantities of automatically generated material and that therefore the studios can justify paying them much less. So we might see either fewer people take up the profession of writing or the profession of writing continuing to to be degraded because writers have already been suffering under the transformations of film and television industries to streaming forms. That was an excuse to ultimately to pay them less uh, for doing the same amount of work. So that is the kind of dystopia that I would be most worried about, is a further degradation of uh, this significant profession. And how widespread is the practice of using generative AI to write scripts or create content in Hollywood at the moment, as opposed to what might happen in the future? I mean, it's almost certainly being used, just as uh, my students are absolutely using it for their papers. And it's something of a dirty secret. And so this kind of negotiation is a way to bring things to the light. It's also important to understand there's a variety of different AI tools that are being used. So they're using AI to determine which kind of materials to adapt to television. So it's a kind of accelerated sort of sifting through of you know novels and things like that. It's used to structure stories and it's used at the level of actual dialogue. And I think what's important to emphasize is that the, the writer demands are not, to, are not actually saying don't use these things. They're saying we need to have a say in how they're used and also how writers are compensated when those tools are being used. I don't want to sound like the guy who hasn't sort of heard, heard the news and is sort of stuck in the last century, but, you know, how realistic is it that AI can replace TV and film rights? I mean, AI, after all, is just, you know, sweeping up non-original content and regurgitating it. I mean, I don't want to make it sound less than it is, but I guess it is a real threat. But, but you know, are there reasons to be sceptical about how real a threat it is? I think we should be cautious of the idea that that AI will completely make writers irrelevant. I know from reading a lot of ChatGPT-generated material uh, over the past few months, it's quite banal. It's polished but empty. Uh, it's it's a truly painful reading experience. So I don't really think that that is going to happen anytime soon. I do think what will happen is, uh, and this is honestly, this is actually part of the history of automation. It's rare that technologies introduced into the labor process completely uh, replace workers. What they do is they reconfigure work so that the, the existing work done by people is more tightly constrained, is more de-skilled, and ultimately comes with uh, lower pay and worse conditions. Right? That is the thing that we should be worried about for writers. I mean, after all, again, I don't want to sound like I'm underestimating the threat, but you know, 10 years ago, everyone was saying or many people were saying self-driving cars were going to make 
truck drivers obsolete, all of that. And here we are 10 years on and people are saying mm, self-driving cars still feel quite a long way away. Now, I, I appreciate that AI is moving more quickly. Yeah, I think you're, you're also right to be very skeptical. The claims about the powers of these technologies are, are, you know, they come from a particular set of interests, people who are trying to drive investment uh, in those technologies. We are living through a moment where, yeah, these promises are, are not really being held up. And I do think that it's quite possible that you'll hit limits uh, to what um, what we're now calling AI. I think there's even reason to be skeptical of that term as a sort of as rooted in marketing rather than actual notions of what intelligence is. There will be limits to what those the, these technologies can do. That they won't be able to produce you know sort of satisfying fictional content or journalism that people will want to read. I think that this is again a kind of vision of the future that is being pushed by the people who you know, w- want to claim that they are going to make the future regardless of what happens. So you need to get on board. Gavin, I read a thing you wrote for The Atlantic where you likened what's going on in Hollywood to, to the Luddites, who, of course, have a dirty name. But, you know, the, the Luddites are people whose livelihood was threatened and the introduction of those looms was devastating for communities. But nobody is thinking that we should still be using old-fashioned looms. Is, is there a version of this where it's ensured that this technology and the use of it is more in the gift of the writers than the studio owners who want to extract shareholder value? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the Luddites have a reputation for being sort of a knee-jerk opposition to technology. But in, in actual fact, they were skilled craftspeople, uh, not unlike writers, right? They're, they were artisans. They were people who were both adept with uh, the latest technologies and also who cared quite deeply about the quality of the work that was being done. So they didn't actually oppose the use of technology is said you can use these technologies, you can use these new forms of textile processing and manufacture, but we want to continue to set the standards of quality, of pay rate, of working conditions, of who can, who can do this work, because that was uh, the privileges that they were given by law. So they actually felt that legally they had a right to, to control that industry. So I think we're we're in a kind of similar situation, right? I mean, I think writers, right? And the, again, the union has said, not said, never use AI, never use these technologies. Use them in ways that don't disempower the writer, that aren't to the detriment of art, right? I think if we actually do care about really quality content, about, you know, the kind of art that inspires us, surprises us, enriches us, then we do want writers to be making the calls and other artists to be making the calls uh, rather than studios who, you know, typically care more about the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is really interesting, isn't it? Because one doesn't want to be dismissive at all of the general insecurity that we've heard about uh, that writers face and the specific dangers of AI. Is there any way in which AI, and maybe this is completely naive, is there a way that this technology can be harnessed in a way that is good for writers? Or do we think it's just all downside? I think the writers would be in a better place to, to answer some of those questions. But there, there is quite a bit. Anybody who's written anything knows there's a, there's a bit of, you know, rote work behind writing and particularly in writing for cinematic content, right? You have to structure things in a certain way so they translate into a particular form that goes on a screen, right? There's standard ways of making your script legible to the other artists that work in filmmaking. And maybe some of that process could be automated or accelerated in certain ways, right? In the same way that we can take something like a spell checker, right, and and quickly correct our typos, But what that doesn't do, right, is replace uh, the actual sort of central role of of writers themselves. I mean, I think what's kind of interesting to me about these AI technologies as well, we were often, as someone who's looked at the promises of technology when it's brought to work, uh, is that it's going to relieve us of our burdens, right? We're not going to have to engage in drudgery, and that'll allow us more free time to do the things that we like to do. One thing that people wish they had more free time to do is to create, to make art. 
And all these new tools are have kind of reversed this process, right? Well, we'll have the machines make your make your images or write your scripts or write your fiction, uh, do the things that people wish they had more time to do and wish they had the, the, the energy and training to do. And what's left for humans? Well, it's like the, the drudgery is, is actually what's left. I think there might be a, a, a bigger conversation to have about why are we throwing all these resources into replicating the things that we actually, people actually enjoy doing? Isn't there a, a way we could redirect these things yeah. to, to, to actual real problems? Yeah, that's really interesting. Is, is there any way in which uh, this conversation that is happening with the Writers Guild around AI is the canary in the coal mine for the wider creative industries? Yeah, I mean, I think you see the actors are also uh, concerned and they've been concerned for, for years now about the use of digital technology to sort of in, replicate what they do. Right. We have uh, Carrie Fisher who passed away and yet she's still starring in Star Wars films. I think these are these are actually real concerns that your image will no longer be connected to you as a person, but it'll be kind of studio property that they can kind of incorporate into films. But I think, you know, from my perspective, there's a much larger uh, debate over uh, the use and introduction of digital technologies and in, into all sorts of things. In the NBA, they want to track and quantify the biometrics of all the players and use that in negotiation. So if your heart rate isn't right, uh, well, maybe we wow. you know, take a year off your contract or something wow. like that. Gee, that is amazing. I hadn't heard that, Gavin. Yeah. Is that a serious proposition? It's, it's, a, it's every year when the players go up for negotiations, the use of biometric data and tracking of it uh, is an issue that they, that they discuss. But this tracking is not so dissimilar from the kinds of tracking that happen at, for instance, an Amazon warehouse where your moves are tightly, tightly surveilled and, and increasingly controlled uh, so that you have very little autonomy at work. If we see how all of these things are connected, right, this gives us a very different perspective on what digital technology is actually doing than what we were encouraged to see, um, you know, as recently as five or 10 years ago. Oh, it's revolutionizing industry. It's bringing efficiency. It's bringing convenience. Even when it seems to bring those things, they can come at a deep cost. And if we live in a world where people must work, uh, then I think we really need to take seriously, yeah, what are these conditions of work? And to make those conditions of work decent. Well, look, Gavin, it's really fascinating to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It was a great conversation. Well, what a fascinating conversation. It's, it's so interesting, this conversation, isn't it? Because, you know, there, there might be maybe some listeners thinking, well, you know, writers is, is this relatively privileged section of society what's this got to do with me but what what we've learned actually is that what you think a career in screenwriting might be versus what that actually looks like can be very different and it touches on all these other elements as alice was saying um about class and who gets to do it and it's so odd that it's been so disrupted by streaming when from the outside, streamers are making money hand over fist and we're living through an age of prestige television. And I was really surprised as well. I'm sure you'll have some stuff to say about the AI, but I, I was really surprised as well to hear how far behind we lag in the UK compared to the United States in terms of unionisation and conditions for writers and actually to to a large extent what this strike is about is american writers being forced into a system more akin to what is just the norm here in the uk it's very rare that we we have a conversation where the the us is more unionized yeah i mean i think it's so many as fascinating aspects of this conversation one you know it's obviously about sort of power and who has power in this kind of industry, which is a conversation that, you know, while it's specifically about this industry, is a conversation, you know, that's relevant to lots and lots of uh, industries. I mean, secondly, I sort of find myself in two minds about the AI thing, because at one level, you know, is there a world in which, I know this is slightly different, but is there a world in which all of the questions that we get, we ask on this podcast are going to be, generated by AI, I sort of, 
I find it quite. I mean, may, you maybe the maybe the questions and 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 you know a script for a TV drama is is like you know much is more sophisticated in many ways than that. Um, I don't. I can't work out how realistic the threat is. It's difficult, isn't it? Because the technology isn't there yet, so we're guessing what it might look like. But I think that's one of the most inspiring things about this, in that the the writers' guild of America have identified that this is something looming yeah. in the future yeah. and, and they're yeah. getting into it now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Rather than doing what they did with streaming yeah, and finding yeah. themselves in a position where it's too late. Well, that is the point, isn't it? Which is, is there a way of, of applying the technology that is going to be good for humans? I mean, that's in a way the point of raising this conversation. I mean, I was thinking, I know it's going to sound a bit trivial, but I was thinking about the ABBA voyage thing, you know, the ABBA Voyage is both you and I think the ABBA Voyage is spectacular, which is the AI generated, I guess, you know, hologram like ABBA concert. That hasn't substituted, I mean, maybe it's substituted for an ABBA tribute band, but you know, that is a sort of, I mean, that's a kind of positive gain, you know what I mean? Yes, but that's that's technology in the right hands, isn't it? So they have been yes. very involved in it and they've made sure that live music and live musicians yes. are at the heart of yes. it. It's, it's yes. when this technology is in the wrong hands. And, yes. and even though we don't know what it will shake out to be, I think probably establishing some principles early on that aren't just dictated by uh, chief executives and the market yeah. is is probably a really good way to go. And I think we should make clear, just for the record, that we've got no plans to replace ourselves with AI bots. I mean, not not, not firm plans. Is there something you're not telling me? <laughs> Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho. We're in the outro, ho, ho. We are ho, ho, ho. Now... Uh, while we've been busy talking about the Writers Guild action in the States, Rachel has done some research and there is such a thing as an oven cam. Ah, they got there before you. Yeah, listen listen to this. This is this is Miele, who I think are very high-end German appliances, I think. Uh, camera inside oven compartment. Keep an eye on your food. A camera integrated into the ceiling of the oven enables you to create a variety of smart and innovative solutions. And it looks like you have an app on your phone and you can watch the inside of your oven from your phone. You can even beam it to the big screen. This is wonderful. What an age I'm we live sorry. in. sorry. Do you feel upset that they got there before you? No, I feel pleased that it exists for very rich people. Well, I'm very pleased you exist, Jeff. Oh, thank you. I don't know what to say, so shall we thank our guests? Yes, let's do that. I'd like to thank our guests, Lisa Holdsworth, Alice Nutter, Simon Beaufoy, and Gavin Muller. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer and senior researcher of Oven Cams. She is supported in both of those roles by newlywed Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Floyd. And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful. 